Welcome to Everybody Hates Me, Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. She's a Canada Research Chair in Global Health Equity and Social Justice with Marginalized Populations and an Associate Professor at the University of Toronto's Factor in Wintosh Faculty of Social Work. Every week, the show features amazing speakers from around the world talking about stigma from research, lived experiences, and activism perspectives. Why should we care about stigma? What can we do about it? Thank you for tuning in. Let's start the show. Listeners, I am really excited to introduce to you a super fantastic and famous guest today, Dr. Emily Mendenhall. She is the Provost Distinguished Associate Professor in the Science, Technology, and International Affairs Program at Georgetown University in the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service. She also holds an honorary faculty appointment in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Witzwaterstrand. She is a medical anthropologist. She has published in the top journals in the world, as well as publishing several amazing books. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Um, You're making me blush over here. (laughs) (laughs) That's the purpose. And so I usually talk about uh, an origin story. So my origin story of if I've ever met you. And I did meet you a year ago. You were so kind to have me visit you in your beautiful campus in DC because I was in Baltimore and it was really nice meeting you and you gave me books. It was so lovely. You can't leave without gifts. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. One day I'm going to have books in my office and I'll be able to give them as gifts as well. <laughs> so I gave you a big introduction and I want to know what is your elevator pitch. If we're in an elevator, say pre-COVID or when we're all vaccinated and we can talk to each other in elevators, how do you describe what you do? So I guess I'm curious about how and where To boil it down as an anthropologist, I'm curious in how people think about and experience illness. So people come to get illness in different ways. They come to learn about it from different places in different ways, and that produces different experiences. So I've always been interested in how the experience of illness affects how people care for themselves and how they feel. And that's one reason I'm really passionate about mental health, but also physical health, and I find all of these kind of experiences, biological, social, cultural, political, as mutually embedded in interacting. So I want to know if I show up at your beautiful home right now, you're in D.C.? Near the D.C. Maryland border. With a time machine, and I say, take me back to the time and place where you started thinking about these issues. Where would we go? So I grew up in rural Iowa in a like nearly white kind of Christian, rural, very conservative area. And so my mom was not like that. And so she had us travel quite a bit as kids. And I remember um, we did this backpacking trip through Copper Canyon when I was 12. And that's when I started really thinking about how the world looks so differently in other places. So I guess for a long time, I've been interested in what it means to not live in the community I grew up in and, and what that is like. 
I started really reading a lot about the Tarahumar people in, in Copper Canyon after that trip. And I, you know, traveled with my family and then I traveled a lot and spent time on a Mapuche reservation in rural Zambia, um, outside out of Managua, Nicaragua. And then I spent time in Guatemala and Zambia, you know, I just spent time, a lot of time every summer I was going somewhere and just kind of learning and listening. And I had some mentors in college who said the most important thing that you can do, and this is what I tell my students, because you don't know how to do anything, you don't understand the world, is spend a lot of time learning and listening. So that's what I did for a really long time. And I, you know, I was just really fortunate to go to a university that had a lot of summer research programs or, or just opportunities to travel and do that kind of work. So um, it was really privileged to have those opportunities. And then I spent time working on this great HIV project um, with Susan Allen during my master's work in public health. And then I moved to the American Health Organization in Guatemala City and worked there for five months, but my contract fell through and I went broke. So I went, I moved to Chicago and my students hear these stories all the time because I like to tell them that sometimes you need to completely fail to get put on the right, um, back on the right track. So I moved to Chicago because I had some friends there and my aunt and uncle lived there. So I could live with them if I needed a place to stay. And I started just reaching out because I knew I was really passionate about research. And I started reaching out to everyone who I thought was doing interesting work. And I cold called this woman who was working at Cook County Hospital. And I asked if she needed someone or if she had any consultancy work. And she actually was like, yeah, I have this interesting project. So I started working on some work. And then I just ended up going full time with her and working on this project on diabetes and trauma. And I ended up working at Cook County Public Hospital in Chicago for about for five years. And it ended up being my doctoral work and my first book. But my interest in kind of trauma and embodied trauma and what that means in chronic illness and mental illness came from sitting in the kitchens with Mexican immigrant women in the south side of Chicago, in Pilsen, in South Chicago, in Back of the Yards, in La Bequita, and just asking them about living with diabetes. And every time I asked someone about diabetes, this long narrative story about different traumatic experiences in their lives would come out. And this happened again and again and again. And it really formed how I thought about chronic illness. And I was inter- I was working in Zambia um, and then Guatemala on mental health and, and VCT for people with HIV. But I realized that some of my interests there also were relayed in violence and, and gender-based violence and not feeling safe and fear. You know, a lot of these emotions and feelings and depression and anxiety were all very similar things that I've been thinking about for a long time. So, you know, I kind of have looked at diabetes for a long time as a window into understanding trauma and social suffering. Um, so that was really what opened my eyes to some of the things that have been a big part of my career. Wow. Okay. So I'm trying to I'm trying to decide where does this time machine start? So you're saying we started in the Copper Canyon in Mexico, right? <laughs> yeah. And then I've been there. I actually rode a train through there. Yeah, that's what we were doing, right? We were hiking and, and going on the train. Oh, it's so beautiful. And then beautiful. and then we go all around the world. So Zambia, Honduras, Guatemala, and end up in Chicago. That is that is so exciting. I, I love this time machine with you because the time machine has multiple stopovers. <laughs> so I'm wondering, Emily, when you think about all of the different health issues you work on, well, first I want to get you to describe to the listeners who may or may not have ever heard of what a syndemic is, what is that? And second, to I'm going to ask you just to kind of talk about maybe why we should care about stigma around various health issues. So first of all, what is a syndemic? 
So syndemics is a term that is not unlike endemic, which is a disease within a population, or epidemic, a disease across the population, or pandemic, which is a disease across the world. And syndemic plays off of the term epidemic because it brings to, together the ideas that epidemics are always in synergy with one another. So very rarely do you see one disease in isolation. But what syndemics does is it makes you think of the synergies of two or more diseases within a population. So I like to kind of bring it down, boil it down to three rules for thinking about syndemics. So number one, the first rule is that two or more diseases emerge and cluster together within a certain population. So it may be within a city, it may be within a neighborhood, it may be within a region of the world. And really thinking about, you know, what diseases epidemiologically are clustering. It may, you may look at it through a frame of comorbidity or of multimorbidity. The second rule is that there's an interaction between those two terms, those two conditions, two or three conditions. The interaction may be psychological, biological, so the idea that um, mental distress or um, negative feelings can affect what you eat and your weight, for example. Or it can also be social. So this is where stigma really comes into play, in my opinion, is the link between social dynamics and biological disease. So one example of this is in my work in South Africa and Kenya, there's a really powerful link between HIV and diabetes in part because of the social stigma around HIV and um, community leaders and faith healers in actually Nairobi and Johannesburg, both places where I worked, had said for decades before I did my research, you know, HIV is just the same as diabetes and cancer. And what happened is that, that when people got diabetes or breast cancer, I did a study on breast cancer in, in Sweto, where I work in Johannesburg as well. And that caused people to not want to report that they had diabetes in fear of being, having it linked to HIV stigma. So that's one way in which actually a disease could be linked. So you may delay getting care for diabetes because you're fear stigma. So that's one other way. So number one, we have clustering. Number two, we have interaction. And the third is that there are larger drivers of a condition. So this may be drivers from society, social, social determinants. It may be political determinants. It may be ecological determinants like climate change, or it could also be cultural determinants of belief. So these are really powerful ways in which, you know, diseases emerge and, and cluster and interact. That's so interesting. And I want to ask you a little bit more about why you think we should care about the stigma specifically. You mentioned that some folks might think that diabetes or might have the experience that diabetes might co-occur with HIV. And so a diagnosis for one for diabetes then might link them to another stigmatized illness such as HIV. So in that way, I guess what you're saying is stigma can actually stop people from engaging with the health system. Mm -hmm. Is there other you know, things you, you want the listeners to know about why they should be thinking and caring about stigma? Yeah, well, I think that illnesses take on a social life after diagnosis for people. And this is pretty powerful experience. And we know, especially the extraordinary research on HIV that's demonstrated um, in how you know, people will delay care or not want to get tested or not care for their illness because of stigma, because they don't want to be associated with something that may change their life, right? So if you are HIV positive, sometimes there have been many documented cases around the world in different places of people thinking of you differently, affecting who you marry, where you live, you know, where you get care. You know, these are really powerful things. This isn't just 
aligned with HIV, of course, um, it's linked to many illnesses, especially mental health, which is something I spend a lot of time thinking about. One, pe one reason people don't talk about um, interpersonal violence, for example, intimate partner violence especially, is because they don't want other people to know because they think they'll teach, treat them differently. Mm -hmm. um, so this is, this is a really common experience. And, you know, stigma is just having a label that affects how people think about you and how they treat you and how you feel and live and work and, and move in the world, right? It fundamentally shifts your social experience. So this is one reason when diabetes is linked to HIV, why people don't want to report it. Now, this is really different than my work in Delhi. When I'd ask people, because I've done research on the experience of diabetes and how it clusters with other conditions in Chicago, in, Chicago, in the U.S., in Delhi, India, in Sweto, an uh, area of Johannesburg, South Africa, in Nairobi, Kenya, um, and I actually in the Somali region of Ethiopia. And what was so different in compared to the U.S., compared to South Africa, compared to Kenya in really different ways. But what was very different in Delhi is that when I ask people about diabetes and how they feel about diabetes, because there's so much victim blaming in the United States, especially about mm. how people who get diabetes and, and, and fat and, and bodies. And, you know, it's just, there's a lot of moral blame in the mm -hmm. United States, but that just wasn't there. And my um, colleague, Leslie Joe Weaver, wrote this great book called Sugar Intention that talks a lot about this. Um, but people would say, you know, how do you feel about, I'd ask them how you feel about your diabetes. And they'd be like, well, everybody has diabetes. Mm. Um, and it was this really different kind of experience. And people, was, you know, very, people would be getting care and caring for their illness through family members. And people would be really deeply engaged in each other's care. And there were really different economic um, factors that affected certain people. Um, wealthier people had different challenges than middle income and lower people and um, lower income people had really big challenges linked to obviously delaying care and having to pay out of pocket. And you know, there are a lot of different challenges. But one of the greatest difference was the stigma, that the illness itself wasn't really stigmatized, but the care, the financialization of care and the stress linked to the finance mm. um, part was really stressful. That's so interesting to think about how one illness such as diabetes can be experienced differently in all of these different contexts you've worked in. That's so fascinating. My second question was going to be around, can you walk us through, and now I'm like, oh, you might have to take us on a few walks because <laughs> I wanted you to share with the listeners an example of what stigma might look like in a day-to-day -day life, just someone waking up and walking through their day Maybe that stigma is around mental health, or maybe it's around diabetes. But now that you work in so many places and it looks different, I don't know if you want to give us a couple of examples. Yeah, so I guess the place I've worked the most since my time in Chicago is Johannesburg. So I've been working, unfortunately, I've had two babies since I started working there. So I haven't been on the ground as much as I, I wish I would. But I've done a number of studies in, in Sweto, in South Africa. And the, the powerful stigma of, of diagnosis um, in Sweto and linking and not wanting to talk about diabetes or breast cancer, two studies, I've done a really big study on breast cancer as well. And there are really common narratives that people are like, I just don't want to tell people about it because they just assume I have HIV. And I think that kind of linked illness stigma is really stressful. And it's also not disassociated from mental health. And one of the reasons why mental health care is so essential for people living with chronic illness. And we know that after diagnosis, it, you know, it can be people can have some depression or anxiety for a month minimum up to six months. It's almost like a traumatic experience for many people kind of rectifying or kind of renegotiating their own identity and seeing through and thinking about who they are now with this illness. And also getting used to maybe new kind of treatment regimens or different ways of eating. And, you know, a lot of people 
Um, and there's other work, really interesting work from Swaziland as well that found some similar findings that people would rather have HIV compared to diabetes in part because it's more familiar. Like people know, like if I, I, w I would rather have HIV because it, it's more familiar. I know people who have it, who manage it in this, you know, this way or that, this medication, I can live with it. Um, I'd rather not have diabetes because I have to change how I eat. Now, you know, eating is such an essential part of who we are, what we eat, how we eat, how we prepare food. You know, when I change my diet so radically, I'm not, you know, I'm, you know, feeding my loved ones is essential to my identity and who I am. So changing, you know, and this is something I also found in almost every place I've worked is, you know, having to shift what you cook and how you feed each other and how you, you know, what food you consume, which becomes such an essential part of who you are, um, is really kind of identity, like it really rocks the core of their identity and how they love and how they care for their family. And, you know, food becomes such an essential part of that. Yeah, it's something I found in every place is people think they talk about diabetes through, uh, like a lot of my work is on trauma, but also through, you know, loving others and serving others. And men and women talk about diabetes really differently, and it has a lot to do with caregiving. So that's so interesting. So the stigma people might experience around diabetes is around having to change their whole approach to food and caregiving, and that might impact, you know, the way that people are shopping for food, cooking for food. I never actually thought about that before. That's so interesting. Yeah, women, whenever you talk about um, with women, when, when you talk about how they've kind of responded to clinical recommendations or changing their diets, they often will, and, and this is overly generalizing, but it is something I found everywhere I've worked, is that women will talk about, you know, well, I don't really change what I feed because my family doesn't want to eat this, right? So I'll just kind of, you know, I'll eat less or I'll eat later, or I just don't really adapt my diet. Well, it, you know, women will say if they have a loved one with diabetes, they'll say, you know, well, we've changed, I change everything that I buy. Everyone has to change what they eat. You know, if their partner has, you know, their their child or their partner or their, their parent has diabetes, they'll shift, you know, the entire family's consumption habits. But if, if they do, they won't. It's been pretty interesting to observe. And other anthropologists have found this as well. So that really also speaks to the way that gender norms construct women is maybe not as important as changing the whole meal plan of their family. You know, rather they're sort of following the, the needs of the larger group and that in turn can, can hurt their health. Wow, that's really interesting. I'm wondering what you think the solutions are to addressing stigma. You work across so many different contexts and so many health issues. How do you think we can all be part of the solution? Is there different kinds of solutions for different health issues, for different contexts? In the end of my book, Rethinking Diabetes, people either really love it or just get so frustrated with it because I provide about 20 different solutions. <laughs> and awesome. I love saying that yeah, because the point is there's no silver bullet. Like, you can't just change a policy and everything will be fixed. You can't just change the way people are cared for in the home or in the clinic and everything will be fixed, right? Like, there's multiple levels of how things need to change, which, you know, are from pretty robust social change to clinical change to community-level changes and even downstream changes. So, like, clinically, like, obviously in the U.S., for example, like, how we feed our children and teach our children to eat needs to shift dramatically. And this is... You know, in the U.S., we traditionally put profits over people, and this has perpetuated really, really bad systemic inequality in public schools, in public food service, in, you know, housing, 
segregation, you know, and how this funds, you know, fuels schools and, and who has access to what. You know, these are pretty extraordinary issues. And and also healthcare, who has access to what clinics and 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 our health system is so broken and fragmented that it's really hard to to think about any change in the U.S. without really fixing our deeply institutional and systemic inequities, um, from racism, you know, to historic shifts in society that need to really happen. And you know, we're in the middle of an extraordinary reckoning. And hopefully some of these things will really be at the forefront of basically crawling back from the coronavirus crisis. And, you know, in times of crisis, there are opportunities for radical change. So I'm trying to be optimistic that something will happen now that we have a new administration. But, you know, thinking at this kind of upstream level is critical, as anyone interested in public health knows. Um, mm-hmm. At the clinical level, the really extraordinary need is to treat people as people and, and care for people as people. And I think this pandemic, one of the main points of pandemic work or, you know, Anyone working on social and behavioral health, um, anthropologists, sociologists, behavioral health specialists, know that people are not diseases, right? People never, I've never, I've done hundreds of interviews around the world, and I've never, ever met one person with one issue. Everyone is dealing with certain things. And in my, in my first book, Syndemic Suffering, in the conclusion, I talk about Teresa, and she comes into, I met her, she came into the clinic, um, and she was like, I came into the clinic with four problems and the doctor didn't answer any of them. And she lists the four problems and they're all social. She's like pissed that her daughter has this new boyfriend who she doesn't like. She's mad at her husband about something. She got in a fight with her sister. You know, like these superhuman issues that she, that are affecting her glucose. And that's mm. not going to be, that's not going to be fixed by giving you more, you know, un, you know, by managing your insulin or metformin or making, you know, it, it can be helped by counseling, for example. And I have this one story, um, and, and this is kind of an extreme story, of a woman I met in 2006, and I interviewed her again in 2007, and then I interviewed her again in 2010. And, you know, in our longest interview in 2007, she talked for hours and hours, and she had, you know, was kind of dealing with this um trauma of abuse from an uncle when she was a child and then um you know she never really healed from it It continued to kind of come up as a rumination in her mind and contributed to this ongoing depression and then she also felt emotionally abused and kind of contained by her husband and she was you know really really struggling and after our time together as I did anyone who had pretty extreme distress. I walked her over to the psychiatry department, which was really close to the GMC at County. And I, I helped her fill out all the paperwork until she, and so she could meet with a counselor. And there were only two psychologists who spoke Spanish at County during, at that time. The GMC, I think it was like a third patients of Latin American descent, but I don't know what the percentage of Spanish speaking only patients were, but it was a pretty large number. There were only two psychologists, but she was able to get in with one of the psychologists. And then when I saw her three years later, it was like really impactful meeting for me because she saw me and she was so excited she gave me this really big hug and she met with me from this other study um, which was my dissertation actually and we spent another kind of long period of time talking although it was a little bit shorter because she said you know I really dealt with the things that we talked about last time and um, she had no depression her diabetes was really well controlled and she left her husband and gotten a job and had her own apartment Wow, and that's so thinking awesome. About how these, yeah, and she had actually talked to a, a Spanish-speaking counselor at the, um, through the hospital for two years. Wow. And she said she was not seeing the counselor anymore at the second time we spoke. But that, that example is just like how radically having someone to listen to you and care for you can change your situation, right? It's not the medication that's going to change it. It's having someone to help you deal with your trauma and figure out how to make, how to, you know, 
change things in your life that will enable you to be happy. She was not a wealthy woman. She 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 took the steps and made things happen. She also had um, you know a sister who lived in the city who you know played a role in her support. So you know it's often having that one person who can help you. That's so powerful. I, when I asked the solution to different kinds of stigma across different podcasts, so many people say listeners can be that supportive person. They can, you know, if there's a listener walking their dog or working in a cafe or, you know, driving their car, sitting on a bus. One thing that we could all do is, is try to listen more and be supportive and less judgmental and, and understand that people's problems are created in the social world. So a lot of the solutions might, you know, might lie with us being more caring and thoughtful and empathetic. Although we need structural change for sure. Definitely structural change and something we can all do is just probably listen more to each other. Yeah, I mean, I used to joke, but this is something that has just kind of gone with me is after I do a lot of my work, I mean, if you work on trauma, I think this is pretty common. If you have space for people to speak in a, in a context like a public hospital or you know where people don't often have space to really speak and be heard, you know, many people would be like, thank you for listening and spending this time with me. I feel like I just had a therapy session <laughs> or like to say, this was so cathartic, you know, and I think that power of listening and feeling heard can be just really overwhelming and healing. That is so inspiring. I feel, I feel so good hearing the hopeful end to that story really was amazing. And, and also the journey to get there that encompassed a lot of things. I know we're coming up to our time. I just want to know, first of all, is there any last things before I get to the wild cards where they get the listeners get to hear more about the real Emily? Is there any last thoughts on stigma you wanted to share? So one other thing I just want to mention is um, I did this big study in coronavirus this summer, and I have a Vox piece that's like really short that's kind of interesting about it. But one of the powerful things about studying how people perceived and experienced coronavirus in a rural tourist town in the Midwest and U.S was that, you know, wearing a mask was really this, like, defiance against, or this defiance against President Trump. And they think that everyone keeps wanting to talk to economists for, like, behavioral recommendations, or they want to talk about, you know, what is the best uh, public health recommendation we can make. And really this kind of, people's responses to these recommendations are so deeply cultural and political that the U.S. will not come out of this without mandates. And we cannot keep just screwing around with these states level legislation because the states aren't going to get in line. And so I think like one of the really powerful ideas about coronavirus is that, you know, masks have so much stigma and staying at home has so much stigma, especially in highly conservative areas that, that, you know, national kind of mandates are really the only way we're going to get out of this mess. And I think that people need to stop talking about the fact that, you know, we can have these like piecemeal interventions. I mean, people know this around the world, but the U.S. is not listening. It's very frustrating. But I think stigma plays a huge role in why people just ignore any sort of public health recommendations for coronavirus. I'm going to link to that article because it's amazing. And I think we should all be really reflecting on our own reactions to things like wearing masks and public health recommendations and, you know, how those reflect maybe different political perspectives rather than public health. So yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up. Yeah. 
So are you up for a few wildcard quick questions? <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> All right. Wildcard question number one. What are you binging on Netflix right now? <laughs> oh, I just started this new show called Away. It's really funny because Hilary Swank is this like astronaut that goes to Mars. And I'm just in the first episode. Not that I haven't been binging network Netflix after I put my kids to bed because I have all <laughs> like the whole pandemic. But I just I just I keep giggling about it because my really close friend who an office her office is right next to mine, Sarah Stewart Johnson, just wrote this book on Mars. It's called The Sirens of Mars. And it is this beautiful book. She's a Mars scientist. Um, it has kids about my age and you know, we've kind of been going through the Georgetown, our time at Georgetown together. Um, it's just a wonderful book. It's been, you know, written up in the New York Times. But it's really funny because she looks a lot like Hillary Swank. That's <laughs> so, so I've been watching this movie about this astronaut going to Mars, and it's just so fun. Um, yeah, so that's what I'm watching. That's great. I, I haven't heard of it, so I'll put it on the list. We're almost through. Uh, we just started, and I was sad when you say you've just started, and you're almost through the good place. So when that's done, we're going to be looking for something else. So my second question is, if you could go for dinner anywhere in the world with anyone you wanted, imagine there's no COVID restrictions, where would you go and who would you take? Probably the year we lived in Delhi was the most delicious year of my life. So <laughs> there are a few restaurants in Hazkaz Market, uh, or Hazkaz Village, sorry. I think it's Market, but the, so many yummy um, places in Hazkaz Village. Probably somewhere there, or anywhere in the area where we lived. It was so fun. We had such amazing time. I lived there with my husband, Adam Kuhn, who is also a public health researcher. And, you know, despite having spent a lot of time with my kids and my husband, I would probably be with them. They're my favorite people in the world. Yeah, so Fiona, Zoe, and Adam. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, when you do go there next, take a selfie, send it to me. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I, yeah, I love India. I did my PhD work in the South there, so I've been there for a couple of years, and I do miss the food. The food is different everywhere, but it's so good. <laughs> like, oh, oh traveling now, it's like, oh, it'd be so great. Um, so my last and final question for Wildcards and for the podcast is, is there one piece of advice or wisdom that you would like to share with the listeners? Maybe something that's been helpful for you on your journey. I'm stealing this advice from someone else. This is an old friend of mine who's like, find a little bit of time every day to sweat 20 minutes a day, have five minutes of absolute quiet and to write and reflect on your time, your brief period in this life on this earth. So I try to do that. I don't always succeed, but you know, try to be kind of find time, at least a little bit of time to quiet your mind and find a, a you know, center every single day. It's funny because I've, I've been practicing Ashtanga yoga for 20 years and it's like my centering piece, but I haven't been able to practice as much during the coronavirus, even though I'm at home all the time. I, my kids are crawling on me or my dog is jumping on me. It's like such an issue. So I leave the house and I go for a long walk or a run every single day. And that is my time, you know, so just finding a little space for yourself. It's really hard to do sometimes, but it, it really keeps you balanced. Definitely. I hear you. I, I love boxing, but the the gym keeps getting close. <laughs> so <laughs> I've just been doing walking and being like, okay, put on a podcast, go for a walk, you know, just be in nature or you know, we, we were riding our motorcycles, but the snow arrived today. So, oh, <laughs> but I hear so cool. you. I think it's really, it's really important 
to find that time and that space and the silence or, you know, the nature, whatever it is. That's so great. (sighs) I also think that I do my best kind of writing in my head on a run if I don't have my headphones on. (laughs) I don't know if you feel that way, but for especially young academics or, or, you know, anyone kind of wanting to do any writing, you know, really just trying to turn things off and creating a space for you. Me moving my body, like going on long bike rides which I did before I had kids, but now I just go on the runs and that's when I just really work out ideas. I don't know. No, I hear you. Sometimes it's like there's so much input that just stopping it for a moment, you know, just to just to be present is is such a gift. So you're you're awesome. You're awesome. I can't wait to see you again next time I'm in DC when we all have vaccines. Oh, you're awesome. Next time we should probably get some wine. and <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Thank you so Actually, much. go to a restaurant. <laughs> yes, please. Um, I'm going to have a link up to your Vox article and your website and some of your work and your all your social media handles that are public so the listeners can learn more about your awesome work. Well, everyone stay safe and, and find some find some serenity during these times. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on today. <laughs> Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to Everybody Hates Me, Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. Join us next week for more inspiring and motivating conversations with stigma leaders from around the world. 